Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith and in this episode I'm joined by a two-time Booker Prize nominee. His second novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, was adapted into a feature film starring Riz Ahmed, Kate Hudson and Kiefer Sutherland. His most recent novel, Exit West, was listed by Barack Obama as one of his favourite books of 2017. He's Mohsin Hamid. Mohsin, welcome. Thank you. In the Penguin podcast, we ask our guests to bring along a number of objects that have inspired their writing, and Mohsin is very kindly obliged. We'll find out what those objects are shortly. Firstly, let's get out of the way. How did you feel when Barack Obama name-checked your novel? I felt pretty good. Um, (laughs) I heard about it, I think, from my sister, who saw it on Facebook. Somebody told her just around New Year's sort of Eve, midnight-ish in Lahore. I was at a New Year's Eve party, so kind of was the ideal way to begin 2018. <laughs> the book deals with lots of different issues. Obviously, migration is a, is a global issue. How do you think Barack Obama might have related to that whilst reading your book? And, and do you care? Well, I think that the book was written at least partially as a way of trying to imagine where we might go, uh, humanity, as a look at what we think of as a migration apocalypse and seeing if it might not be apocalyptic at all. And in that sense, for Barack Obama to have read it is great because it means it's reaching, you know, all sorts of people. But also, I think of Obama himself as a product of migration. His father was from Kenya. He grew up in Hawaii and Indonesia. And then, of course, you know, lived in continental United States, became president. So for me, Barack Obama, somebody like him, could very well be a character in the book. Yeah. Can you give us a brief synopsis before we go any further of Exit West? Exit West is a story of two people, say the Nadia, a young couple who meet in an unnamed city as it is about to descend into civil war. They have a romance, a courtship, a relationship, which is more dramatic and passionate perhaps because of the setting. But they flee, and they flee by means of these black doors that begin to open all over the world. They go to Greece and then to London and eventually to California. And as they flee, the whole world is fleeing. Billions of people move. And so the next several centuries of human migration unfold in about a year or so. And why did you keep the city anonymous where Sid and Nadia live? I wanted to have the starting point be open to the reader. So the reader could imagine their own city. They could imagine the city of their lover or their father or their mother or something they'd read about in the news or seen on television. I guess in part I just didn't have the heart to do to Lahore, Pakistan, the city where I live, what happens to this city. I'm sure you get asked this question a lot. Could you have imagined the relevance of the novel given Trump's travel bans and disparaging comments about Africa and Haiti recently? The the political discourse around migration seems to be more relevant than ever. Well, I was wrong about the outcome of the US election. I certainly didn't think that Trump would be elected president. I was wrong about the outcome of the Brexit referendum. But that said, the novel was written into an environment where I felt that fear of migration and fear of hybridity and mongrelization was getting more and more pronounced. And as somebody who's migrated virtually my entire life, I take that personally. And I was writing in reaction to those trends. I guess I have been surprised by how quickly things have gotten to where they are. But that we were headed in this direction seemed clear. Well, let's go straight to the audiobook of Exit West, read by Ashley Kumar. Here we get a first glimpse of one of the magical portals that appear in the book, opening up, this time in Australia. The door to her closet was open. Her room was bathed in the glow of her computer charger and wireless router. But the closet doorway was dark, darker than night, a rectangle of complete darkness, the heart of darkness. 
and out of this darkness, a man was emerging. He too was dark, with dark skin and dark woolly hair. He wriggled with great effort, his hands gripping either side of the doorway, as though pulling himself up against gravity or against the rush of a monstrous tide. His neck followed his head, tendons straining, and then his chest, his half-unbuttoned, sweaty, grey-and-brown shirt. Suddenly, he paused in his exertions. He looked around the room. He looked at the sleeping woman, the shut bedroom door, the open window. He rallied himself again, fighting mightily to come in, but in desperate silence, the silence of a man struggling in an alley, on the ground, late at night, to free himself of hands clenched around his throat. But there were no hands around this man's throat. He wished only not to be heard. With a final push, he was through, trembling and sliding to the floor like a newborn foal. He lay still, spent. So we heard about these portals, these doors that allow people to go from one country to another there. It's, I suppose, the only magical, realist part of the book is that people miss out the sometimes harrowing journey that it can be to migrate from one place to another, and they go through the portals changed and exhausted often, but it's a, an instantaneous thing. Why did you choose to leave out the sometimes traumatic journey? Well, I think the journey is very important in people's lives, but we focus on the journey all the time. And I think what has happened is those of us who have not crossed the Mediterranean in a small rubber dinghy or crawled underneath the barbed wire on the U.S.-Mexico border imagine that somebody who has done those things is in a different category of person from us. They're different from us. Whereas that was a tiny moment in terms of time in somebody's life. The migrant or refugee was somebody who lived in a place and chose to leave that place and then was in a new place and tried to make sense of the new place, which we've all done as well, leaving our parents' houses or leaving our towns. And so by removing that part of the journey, I tried to remove the part of the story which makes us think of migrants and refugees as something different from ourselves. As human beings, we are the same. And your first object relates to that. I believe it's your mobile phone. Can we see your mobile phone yes. in the studio? And I will describe it yes. to, the, to the listener of this well, podcast. It, it may involuntarily light up. Yeah, hopefully it stays black. I won't drop any brand names, but it's a pretty standard gleaming mobile phone. It's light's gone off and it's black at the moment. Why did you choose this as one of your objects that inspired the book? Well, in the novel, characters pass through these black rectangles, these doors. And you may have one day you know, woken up to discover that the door that formerly led into your bathroom has now been replaced by this black rectangle. If you push yourself through it in the novel, you're no longer in London, but in Kinshasa or uh, Cairo or uh, Bangkok. And this, of course, bends the laws of physics, but I think is true to the emotional reality of our world a world in which technology is collapsing uh, physical distance, is obliterating in a way. Because we each carry with us a black rectangle, these screens of our phones when they're off. And these screens are an invitation. Our consciousness travels through them. So suddenly we are divorced from the physical location of our body and we are reading about the history of the Second World War or vacation destinations in Norway or the surface of Mars or characters in Westeros. Yeah. 
And so we travel to these places in our minds. This is happening all the time. It's not an accident. We create technology because we desire to be able to do this. And so the doors, in a way, in the novel, are an expression, I think, of what technology feels like, even if to describe that they have to bend physics. How did you feel about moving away from realism? That seems to be, you know, the bedrock of, of what you write about. And then we have this, this thing that is a pivot in the book. Well, I think, you know, my novels are almost always very slightly skewed for what we would call consensus realism, yeah. because realism doesn't actually exist. So you and I are sitting at this moment across each other from a sort of hexagonal table, which looks and feels like solid wood to me. But I know that actually this table is mostly empty space and there are atoms scattered like a cloud that create the sense of being a solid surface. And similarly, I would describe myself as, you know, a nice, easygoing person, but sometimes I behave like a complete jerk. And when I do that, I say I'm not myself. But the truth is that the self that I actually am is different from the self that I fabricate. The human self is partly an invention. And so all the time, we are constructing reality. And by pivoting it just slightly, putting ourselves slightly skewed to it, I think we can appreciate reality more, remember that we're making it up partly as we go along. Early in the book, there's a line, historians say that geography is destiny. And you've written a novel about two characters who are pushing against that in some way. What should we do to change the inequality between countries? Well, I'm allowing people to inhabit a world in which anybody can move. How that feels to them, whether they desire such a world, whether such a world is something that they could see coming into being, that's for the reader to decide. But as far as I'm concerned, I think that the arc of human history is an arc towards greater equality. You know, we uh, have come to accept, even if not entirely practice, that men and women should be equal that people of dark and light skin should be equal and atheists and believers should be equal and gay and straight people should be equal. To me, it seems inevitable that we will eventually accept the idea that if all of these things are equal, uh, the boy or girl born in Mogadishu and the boy and girl born in Manchester should also be equal. They should have equal right to live in a place that is safe and prosperous. Why should the accident of the geography of your birth be determining everything, perhaps even if you live or die? And so some centuries from now, I suspect people will be able to move around the planet and live where they want. In imagining that, of course, a great deal will have to change. There are two things that for me are very important to recognize. The first is we are each transient. We're here temporarily. Everything changes. Our current political mode of nostalgia is born out of an idea that the way things are now could be made permanent. We could go back to what was before. You know, let's make America great again or make Islam great again or make Britain great again by taking back control. These attempts to make permanent what cannot be made permanent, I think, will always fail. They result in a nostalgic politics. But also, for me, we have to remember that we are not permanent. Each of us is going to die. And it might be that grandparents in the 1940s would have imagined today's multicultural London, were they living in London, to be a kind of horrible abomination. Yet few people living in London today would say they would prefer to live in the London of the 1930s or 1940s. And similarly, our grandchildren's grandchildren will perhaps accept a degree of movement and mixing and mongrelization that to many of us would seem horrific, and they would want it no other way. So one of the nice things about our species is that, you know, we die. It's not so great for us as individuals, <laughs> but as a group, what it means is that forms of equality can be born that today seem inconceivable. 
Let's go to the audio book of Exit West again. In this extract, Nadia and Said embark on their first date and start to entertain the idea of leaving the city. Have you ever travelled abroad? He shook his head. I want to. Me too. Where would you like to go? She considered him for a while. Cuba. Cuba? Why? I don't know. It makes me think of music and beautiful old buildings and the sea. Sounds perfect. And you? Where would you pick? One place. Chile. So we both want to go to Latin America? He grinned. The Atacama Desert. The air is so dry, so clear, and there's so few people. Almost no lights. And you can lie on your back and look up and see the Milky Way. All the stars like a splash of milk in the sky. And you see them slowly move. Because the earth is moving. And you feel like you're lying on a giant spinning ball in space. Nadia watched Saeed's features. In that moment they were tinged with wonder. And he looked, despite his stubble, boy-like. He struck her as a strange sort of man. A strange and attractive sort of man. That was an extract from Exit West, written by my guest Mohsin Hamid. We just heard Nadia and Said in the early days when they see travel as a choice rather than as a necessity. And as we can see there at the centre of Exit West, there's a remarkable love story. It's a forbidden love. They're forced apart. They are forced together. How important was it to create a very real relationship arc at the, the heart of Exit West? It was very important. Each of my novels, in a way, is a love story, and there are different kinds of love stories. In Moth Smoke, my first novel, it's a, the aftermath of a love. The second novel, Rotten Fundamentalist, was a kind of love triangle where there's two people who are also in love with nostalgia, something that's gone. The third novel, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, was a kind of non-possessive love as a potential antidote to the uber-capitalism and self-obsession that comes with an untrammeled market. And this novel has a love story which is about transience, about the fact that things change and that things go. It's a first love. And what uh, defines first loves, uh, perhaps for most of us, why we say that uh, term, first love, instead of just love, is because there was a second love. <laughs> and so this is a love story that explores you know, a love that is up against the reality that perhaps it might not endure. Well, let's go to our next object, which is a photograph. It's a cloud of nebulous smoke in the distance and it seems to be quite an ordinary urban environment in that there's a some sort of concrete flyover in the foreground. Could you explain to us what this is, please? My sister took this photograph. She was at work at the university where she taught in those days in Pakistan, perhaps a decade ago, and there was the blast of a distant bomb. A bombing had occurred. Uh, perhaps a mile or two away from where she worked. And she heard the sound and she felt the power of the blast in the sense that her door to her office was ajar and it was pushed slowly open as though a ghost was passing, which is the blast wave of the bomb, presumably. And she went up to see what had happened onto the rooftop of the university. And from there, looking in the direction from which the sound had come, she saw this cloud rising. And it looks sort of a little bit like a mushroom cloud or maybe a horseshoe cloud. And she took a photograph of it. And this is the reality of being in a place where bombs occasionally do go off. Lahore, fortunately, has not seen the kind of bloodshed that many of the similarly ancient cities 
to Lahore's west have experienced, like Kabul and Damascus and Aleppo. But Lahore is also an ancient city, and cities that we used to read about in history textbooks in school as being like Lahore, so many of them have been devastated by war. And so this photograph, in a way, reflects the genesis of the nightmare which flowed into the creation of this book, the nightmare that what if this were to happen to Lahore? What if Lahore were to become like these other cities? In the novel, there's a, quite a tilt in the world of the characters. And you see there, they decide to leave the city. They leave their loved ones behind, and knowing that they may never see them again, it seems that that's something that people forget in terms of the, the narrative of a migrant. There's this life that is left behind, and that's a big loss to be encountered. The vast majority of people in the world would prefer to stay where their yeah. loved ones are. It is something terrible which is driving them to leave, now, either extreme violence or just the inability to make a decent living or be treated like a human being. And so we sometimes ask, oh, the migrant, the refugee, what have they done for the society? You know, what price have they paid to contribute to the development of Britain or America? And we lose sight of the fact that the price they've paid is everything. Mm -hmm. They lose everyone they've loved, every street they know, all the foods they've eaten, the smells they're familiar with, the music. And so that's what, say, the Nadia experience. Well, let's get back to the audio book of Exit West, where we'll see exactly what it's like living with warfare on a day-to-day -day basis. One's relationship to windows now changed in the city. A window was the border through which death was possibly most likely to come. Windows could not stop even the most flagging round of ammunition. Any spot indoors with a view of the outside was a spot potentially in the crossfire. Moreover, the pane of a window could itself become shrapnel so easily, shattered by a nearby blast, and everyone had heard of someone or other who had bled out after being lacerated by shards of flying glass. Many windows were broken already, and the prudent thing would have been to remove those that remained, but it was winter and the nights were cold, and without gas and electricity, both of which were in increasingly short supply, windows served to take some of the edge off the chill, and so people left them in place. Saeed and his family rearranged their furniture instead. They placed bookshelves full of books flush against the windows in their bedrooms, blocking the glass from sight, but allowing light to creep in around the edges, and they leaned Saeed's bed over the tall windows in their sitting room, mattress and all, upright, at an angle, so that the bed's feet rested on the lintel. Saeed slept on three rugs layered on the floor, which he told his parents suited his back. Nadia taped the inside of her windows with beige packing tape, the sort normally used to seal cardboard boxes, and hammered heavy-duty rubbish bags into place over them, pounding nails into the window frames. There you go, another extract from Exit West, and I haven't looked at windows in the same way since I read the book. Those details of the day-to-day -day really bring out what it must be like to live in this state. The burgeoning romance between Nadia and Said is interrupted by some of the, the everyday things. Communication, for example, there are blackouts and networks closed down and it feels like those very everyday things that are helping them know each other and get inside each other's minds, those are the things that seem to affect them the most. It's very disconcerting. In Lahore, it seems like a couple of times a year there'll be some big terrorist alert or threat of some major attack, and they turn off the mobile phones and sometimes cut off the internet connections. And in those moments, it's quite shocking to be cut off in this way. We're so used to <laughs> the hive mind, and we're so used to instant connectivity 
that to be sitting in our houses alone, unconnected, particularly at a time when things are a bit, you know, uh, more dangerous, or they feel more dangerous, and the desire to go out and be on the streets is less, is quite shocking. And so that's what, say, the Nadia experience, these moments where suddenly mobile phone signals disappear and you're all on your own, which is a profound sense of loneliness. After leaving, Sid and Nadia become second-class citizens and almost invisible as migrants. Is it easier for us to understand their situation by focusing on their individual stories rather than a more broad-based, group-based story? Yeah, I I think it's very important to focus on individuals. Groups are things that we make up, but people actually exist. And so say the Nadia are two characters and something that fiction does is it allows us to imagine being other people, not just to describe them from the outside, but to be inside them. And hopefully the reader is able to get inside these characters and feel a little bit what it feels like to be them. Because I think once we've felt being someone else, our relationship to them shifts. Talking of imagination, let's move on to your next object, which is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the C.S. Lewis book. This photograph is the same edition that I had when I was a lad. I was a big fan. Can you explain the significance of the book? The book is significant on multiple levels. One is, of course, there's a wardrobe through which these children, two brothers and two sisters, pass from a Britain under bombardment in the Second World War to the world of Narnia, a place where animals can speak and magic exists and a mighty lion called Aslan rallies the forces of good. Passing through that wardrobe, I'm sure, seeded some of the ideas for these doors that came into this novel. I, I, actually, I, I was writing the novel and gotten quite far into it before I thought of the connection, but I suspect the connection had probably been there unrecognized yeah. all along. Uh, and in fact, the first time we encounter a door in the novel, it is a, a kind of wardrobe that the character is coming out of. Above that, I think children's literature is very important for me in thinking about this novel because there's a double partisan nature to children's literature. Very often, children's books have an incredible power by being on the side of the character. They're not neutral as to whether these characters live or die. You know, if the character throws herself in front of the train, our protagonist, and, you know, commits suicide in this way, as, uh, as happens in Anna Karenina, and we sort of observe this phenomenon coolly, that's how adult literature has handled such things. But in Charlotte's Web, when Wilbur faces death and Wilbur the pig and Charlotte the spider must make a spider web with the writing in it to save him, the novel is crying out for Wilbur to be saved. But the novel's also saying to the reader, you're on our side too. You're with Wilbur and Charlotte. You're on the same team. The novel isn't trying to sort of deceive you, confuse you present a fundamentally untrustworthy narrator that shifts onto you the burden of interpretation, which is something that my first three novels in different ways all tried to do. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's just saying, look, this is what is. And I think that's very important because when I began writing, Pakistan had just come out of a dictatorship which had imposed this Islamization campaign and this enforced, you know, false purity on society. And so to write a novel, Mott Smoke, my first book, about, you know, sex, drugs, adultery, and liars and cheats felt like a necessary artistic response to that stifling condition. But today, in a world where the most powerful people in the world tell us that there is no truth and that the aspiration for decency is a myth, it seems that most appropriate radical artistic response is to actually write about characters who are trying to be decent and write in a way where you say precisely what you mean, where the novel is trying to be true, or true in the sense of 
the novel is saying to the reader what the reader is supposed to understand from the novel. Of Exit West, you said, I found the language changing as the chapters progressed. It's interesting that your process is organic. Is that always the case when you write? This novel actually took less long to write than my previous one. It took four years and the others took six or seven and kind of emerged in its final state much more quickly. But the nature of how the language evolved wasn't planned. It just began to occur. And then when I felt it occurring, I thought, yes, this is what should be occurring, which is, you know, the sentences get longer. There's a kind of rhythm established. And that rhythm is important because the long sentences are not meant to baffle the reader or be a challenge to the reader but rather the reader should move naturally through them because the reader is, is already at that point familiar with the cadence of this language. And so much as a sermon or a magic spell, these things have a way of building. And the novel, in a sense, builds in the same way. And if you imagine that the you know, full stops at the end of a sentence are like the borders inside a paragraph, which is a, a continent, so to speak, it makes sense that in a book where borders disappear, those full stops begin to disappear and the whole thing becomes you know, continent after continent. Well, let's go back to the audiobook of Exit West. Here we are in La Jolla, California, at the site of another portal. The old man had served in the Navy during one of the larger wars, and he had respect for the uniform and for these young men who had established a perimeter around his property. As he watched, standing on the street with their commanding officer, they reminded him of when he was their age and had their strength and their suppleness of movement and their certainty of purpose and their bond with one another. The bond he and his friends used to say was like that of brothers, but was in some way stronger than that of brothers, or at least than his bond with his own brother, his kid brother, who had passed last spring from cancer of the throat that had withered him to the weight of a young girl, and who had not spoken to the old man for years, and when the old man had gone to see him in the hospital, could no longer speak, could only look, and in his eyes was exhaustion, but not so much fear. Brave eyes, on a kid brother the old man had never before thought of as brave. The officer didn't have time for the old man, but he had time for his age and for his service record, and so he allowed the old man to linger nearby for a while, before saying with a polite dip of his head that it would be best if he now moved on. The old man asked the officer whether it was Mexicans that had been coming through, or was it Muslims, because he couldn't be sure? And the officer said he couldn't answer, sir. So the old man stood silent for a bit, and the officer let him, as cars were diverted and told to go some other way, and as rich neighbours who had bought their properties more recently sat at their front windows and stared. And in the end, the old man asked how he could help. We heard in the clip there locals coming to grips with the free movement of people, and that has a connection to your next object... Can you tell us what your next object is? Again, it's in your pocket. <laughs> yes, it's my UK passport. I'll put it down here. So I travelled on a Pakistan passport for most of my life. I became a citizen of the UK about a decade ago. I had lived in America and travelled all around the world, but uh, on a Pakistan passport that meant endless queuing and visa lines and long questioning at the border. And having a UK passport suddenly transformed everything. I could go most of the world without needing a visa at all. And so this sense of freedom, which I suddenly had begun to participate in, but what yet which is denied to the vast majority of humanity, is something that uh, the novel tries to capture. 
You've written vignettes in the book, individual tales of people who use the doors as well. Why did you choose to pepper these throughout the story of the couple? Because the novel is a novel of transience and loss and how that is something that affects everyone. And I think we should have no less compassion, you know, for the person who is living in the same place they've lived their entire lives and experiencing that place seeming to become to them a foreign country. Somebody who feels that isn't necessarily a kind of xenophobe or bigot or, you know, a hateful human being. That is a very natural human feeling. The important thing isn't, isn't to deny that feeling, but to suggest that that feeling is actually quite similar to what the migrant is feeling in losing their home. That, in fact, these two people that we might think of as kind of opposites, the person experiencing change to where they are uh, and the person experiencing change in where they are, are flip sides of the same human experience. And, in fact, if we can have compassion, you know, for the migrant, we can have greater compassion also for the native. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go to the final extract of Exit West, another of these vignettes. Here, an elderly man is sitting on the balcony of his central Amsterdam flat when he sees a wrinkly man emerging from the communal garden shed. And here he was, a smoker for the better part of a century, about to light a cigarette, when he saw, emerging from the common shed in the courtyard, where garden tools and the like were stored, and from which a steady stream of foreigners now came and went, a wrinkled man with a squint and a cane and a Panama hat, dressed as though for the tropics, the elderly man looked at this wrinkled man and did not speak. He merely lit his cigarette and took a puff. The wrinkled man did not speak either. He walked slowly around the courtyard, leaning into his cane, which made scraping noises in the gravel of the footpath. Then the wrinkled man moved to re-enter the shed. But before he left, he turned to the elderly man, who was looking at him with a degree of disdain, and elegantly doffed his hat. The elderly man was taken aback by this gesture and sat still, as if transfixed. And before he could think of how to respond, the wrinkled man stepped forward and was gone. The next day the scene repeated itself. The elderly man was sitting on his balcony. The wrinkled man returned. They gazed upon each other. And this time, when the wrinkled man doffed his hat, the elderly man raised a glass to him, a glass of fortified wine, which he happened to be drinking. And he did so with a serious but well-mannered nod of his head. Neither man smiled. On the third day, the elderly man asked the wrinkled man if he would care to join him on his balcony. And the elderly man could not speak Brazilian Portuguese and the wrinkled man could not speak Dutch. They cobbled together a conversation, a conversation with many long gaps, but these gaps were eminently comfortable, almost unnoticed by the two men, as two ancient trees would not notice a few minutes or hours that passed without a breeze. On his next visit, the wrinkled man invited the elderly man to come with him through the black door that was inside the shed. The elderly man did so, walking slowly, as the wrinkled man did as well, and at the other side of that door, the elderly man found himself being helped to his feet by the wrinkled man in the hilly neighbourhood of Santa Teresa in Rio de Janeiro. That was an extract from the audiobook of Exit West by Mawson Hamid. We also see the flip side to that as well, the incredibly bleak side to migrancy within the book. There's labour camps on the outskirts of London, for example. Nadia and Sid end up there. Was it important to you to portray that side as well? There are certainly bleak points. Uh, there's a moment, you know, in the novel where it seems as though perhaps kind of nativist militias might eradicate these people who are recent arrived migrants. 
But as far as the labor camps where they work out, those are things which may or may not be desirable in the sense that in the novel, what winds up happening is that, say, the Nadia begin to be part of this program where migrants are constructing sort of with state assistance their own cities and towns and dwellings. And they have, you know, native-born four men and four women working over them, but they're building these things. And in a sense, various mechanisms are found for them to pay their dues, so to speak. So those, I guess, for me, are less dystopic and more, you know, possible mechanisms by which societies could learn to deal with these new arrivals. Yes, the bleakness that, you know, perhaps we will be eradicated is something which people feel. But the history of human, you know, civilization is largely the history of massacres that did not happen. You know, we seem to think that the Holocaust or, you know, genocide is the human norm. It isn't, actually. Those things are shocking because they are abnormal. Mostly, people grumble and make space. That is more typical of human history. So is it uh, is Exit West a utopian novel? <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's a funny question. Is, is it, I mean, you know, utopian maybe is too strong, but I would say it is a novel that tries to be cautiously optimistic. And I think that that, for me, is the most important thing. Optimistic because our species, I suspect, will find a way. Cautiously because uh, it cannot be guaranteed. And also because, you know, human history is one where we each experience a tragedy of, you know, not being around for it, the better time that's going to come. But yet, despite that, it's possible to experience beauty and it's possible to experience meaning and decency, you know, love, connection. And that really is, say, the Nadia's love story in a nutshell, a story of beautiful moments, but a story that, like all stories, has a beginning and has an end. On that positive note, let's go to your final object. We have a CD of Taj Mahal by Gilberto Gil and Georges Ben. Could you tell us about this? I'll, I'll describe the, the front cover of this record very briefly. There's guitars, there's very talented musicians, and they are jamming together in a, in a utopian fantasy again. <laughs> so, you know, Gilberto Gil and Jorge Ben are these great, you know, Brazilian musicians of some decades ago, and they got together for this jam session, and my Brazilian roommate, when I was living in Boston and going to law school, played me this track, Taj Mahal which was striking to me because, of course, the Taj Mahal is from the Indian subcontinent. It's from South Asia, and I've been there. And it's not that far from Lahore, even though it's in present-day India. That this would be something that appears in, in Brazilian music was interesting to me. Why are the Brazilians aware of this thing? It's also interesting because the song is full of elements where, you know, they start you know, chanting you know, Krishna and whatnot, and, of course, the Taj Mahal was built by a Muslim emperor, so they sort of associate with, like, a Hindu chant. But that said, that almost makes it more endearing that, that it's been processed in Brazil in this different way. It, for me, was a story of how we are all connected and how everything kind of melds together, that, you know, things that I associate with Pakistan and India are weirdly influencing what's happening in Brazil. And furthermore, when you listen to the song, what's shocking is how similar at times it is to If You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart, yeah. which sounds, you know, very, very similar to the riff in this song. Oh, yeah, it's not, not for not. Yeah, so you're thinking, okay, well, this is an interesting thing because this song about this monument in South Asia, which is a song being made in Brazil, becomes the hit track of the UK in this weird transmutation. And so, you know, that for me is what human culture actually is rather than the illusion of these separate purities that we are told to imagine that it's supposed to be.
Yeah, I read, I read a quote from Rod Stewart in his autobiography where he said he must have heard it and it wasn't consciously ripping it off, he says, but he, he does use the phrase bang to rights. So Rod's admitted it. The guys are getting some cash. <laughs> yeah, and you thankfully. Know, I mean, I think the thing about it is, when it comes to influence, right? Who knows how we're influenced? And in the same way that Rod Stewart was, you know, influenced by this music from Brazil, which was influenced by the story from South Asia, we are all influenced through our ancestors in precisely the same way. We each have, you know, an African ancestor who continues to influence us, and so we lose sight of these influences at our own peril. Exit West, I'm informed, has been optioned as a feature film with Morton Tildum, director of The Imitation Game at the helm. Do you think that authors should definitely be involved in the screenplays when books turn into films? Not necessarily. You know, it's a bit like saying, you know, I'm a sculptor and I've just made this sculpture of your song. You know, what does it mean to make a film of a book? I write books that are very bookish books. So they try to use things that only books can do. And then when you take a story that has the same narrative elements and transpose it into a different medium, you're creating a different work of art. So ideally, you know, for me as a novelist, it's imagining the story going to school, like my own kids. You know, do I want to be in school, teaching the kids, shaping them at every moment? Perhaps not. Maybe the best thing is to find a school where I like the attitude, I like the ethos, I like the political outlook, I like the feel of the place, and send the kids there and hope something good comes out at the end. What's next for you? I read an interview the other day where you said that you don't really pick up your notebook too much when it's the year of release. Do you have something on the go at the moment, a new novel? I've come to think of writing novels as very unlike sort of climbing a mountain or a project of that nature. For me, writing a novel now feels like you create a void, an empty space of some hours every day, like a well. And eventually something fills that well, fills that void. And that thing is the novel. So after several years of maintaining this void of several hours a day, the year of publication or the year after publication, I, I don't. And partly that is I'm traveling too much and partly it's nice to not have that void for a little while. But the itch comes to create the void again and to have in my day-to-day -day life a large space of time that is entirely imaginative space. And I'm starting to feel that itch now. But, you know, what is going to come into that void to me is still a little bit of a mystery at this point in time. That's fair enough. Thanks very much for joining us today. And we look forward to hearing what, what comes next eventually when the itch becomes something more tangible. Thank you. Thanks a lot. The one and only Zadie Smith, prize-winning, best-selling author of Swing Time and White Teeth, is back with a second unmissable collection of essays. No subject is too fringe or too mainstream. From social media to the environment, from Jay-Z to Karl Uwe Knausgård, she has boundless curiosity and the boundless wit to match. In Feel Free, pop culture, high culture, social change and political debate are all dissected with her razor-sharp intellect. Writing exists, for me, at the intersection of three precarious, uncertain elements. Language, the world the self. The first is never wholly mine. The second I can only ever know in a partial sense. The third is a malleable and improvised response to the previous two. Feel Free by Zadie Smith is available to download in audiobook now from all audiobook retailers.